Our second scripture reading this morning comes from the Gospel according to Luke, the 14th chapter. One Sabbath, when Jesus went to share a meal in the home of one of the leaders of the Pharisees, they were watching him closely. When Jesus noticed how the guests sought out the best seats at the table, he told them a parable. When someone invites you to a wedding celebration, don't take your seat in the place of honor. Someone more highly regarded than you could have been invited by your host. And the host who invited both of you will come and say to you, Give your seat to the other person. Embarrassed, you will take your seat in the least important place. Instead, when you receive an invitation, go and sit in the least important place. When your host approaches you, he will say, Friend, move up to a better seat. Then you will be honored in the presence of your fellow guests. All who lift themselves up will be brought low, and those who make themselves low will be lifted up. Then Jesus said to the person who had invited him, When you host a lunch or dinner, don't invite your friends, your brothers and sisters, your relatives or rich neighbors. If you do, they will invite you in return, and that will be your reward. Instead, when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind, and you will be blessed because they can't repay you. Instead, you will be repaid when the just are resurrected. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I've been wrestling with something a lot lately. Maybe you can help me think it through a little. I've been thinking a lot lately about what role social media plays in my life. How useful it can be, how harmful it can be. I'm talking about Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all those stuff, all that stuff. I'm worried about how much time I spend on these sites. If I'm not careful, I can find myself spending hours just staring at my phone, blankly ahead, scrolling on and on as infinite content rolls by. Everything from cute dog pictures to music videos to someone's latest take on which fast food chain has the best chicken sandwich, believe it or not. Politics are, of course, another aspect of social media these days. Politicians themselves will make statements and advocate for certain issues on their own pages. We even live in such a strange time when our own president's Twitter feed is often the subject of major news articles and debate. And a lot of people I follow online are actively engaged in the news cycle. I see plenty of people offering their strongly worded opinions about any given topic of the day. So in one sense, social media is a way for me and all of us to catch up on the news and read some responses from people that we really trust. On the other hand, no matter what someone's opinion and no matter how right they may seem, it so quickly turns into a flaming hot pile of garbage. Fights break out. Families are torn apart. It seems like anyone with a smartphone and a Facebook profile has turned into an armchair politician these days with their own unique take on how things ought to be. Now, I'm not condemning anyone for being actively engaged in the world of politics. It's a good and faithful thing to do. We need more of that if we want to see any real change in our world. But what I'm starting to wonder is, one, how effective is it to do this work over social media? 
Two, how genuine are some folks when they post about these issues? Are they really concerned about the latest actions or comments from XYZ politician, or are they just making comments to make themselves look good? Are they seeking justice and for their voice to be heard, or are they just mimicking their friends and neighbors looking for likes and voices of affirmation? These are questions I often ask myself before I make any type of post. And as I've thought about this, I've also wondered how often we as a church fall into that trap. Not just second pres, but the wider Christian church. And not just in politics, but in all aspects of our communal life. When we do ministry together and serve our neighbors and seek new ways to help usher in God's realm, do we do it to fully live into God's call? Or do we do it because of what it might do for us? What the results and fruits of our efforts might be? Are we after more people in our pews, more money in the budget, more assets, or more name recognition? Do we chase after these things alone? Or are we chasing after faithfulness to God's call, no matter what the results might be? Jesus was asking the same kind of questions of those he encountered during his ministry, especially the religious insiders and those who claimed to be in the know. On one such occasion, he was eating a meal at the home of a leader in the Pharisee community. This is someone who was definitely in the know and someone who was definitely known by the wider community and among other Jewish leaders. The leader was having a whole group of people over for dinner, and they were all interested in Jesus' work. The scripture tells us they were watching his every move, and apparently Jesus was watching them back. Jesus noticed they were seeking out the best places to sit for the meal. Now, according to biblical scholar Richard Vinson, this is how the meal in that time would have been set up. Guests would sit in cushioned benches that were arranged in a U-shape, and slaves of the host of the meal would place food on low tables in front of the benches, and diners would slowly eat and drink with one hand while making conversation and reclining on their elbows. You can basically picture like one big uh, couch in a U-shape. Now, the most important seats were in the middle of the U. And the farther away someone sat, the lower their status, the least important they were. And slaves were present in this, in this space, but only to serve or entertain. So being aware of these customs and noticing the other guests seeking after the best seats, Jesus offers them some sound advice. Don't assume the best seat is for you, because it very well might not be. Instead, assume that you have the least honorable seat and hope that you might be moved up. If you are, then you'll really be honored. Honestly, there's nothing new or radical about this. This seems like the polite thing to do, especially if you come from the South like me. This was probably common wisdom shared in Jewish circles at that time. However, this isn't just good advice. This is the good news. So notice how before Jesus even offers this wisdom, it's qualified as a parable. Anytime Jesus offers a parable, we can expect that he's essentially saying, the kingdom of God is a lot like this. So in this particular moment, Jesus is saying, the kingdom of God is a lot like going to a dinner party. 
But instead of seeking out the high place at the table, the place of honor, seek out the low place at the table, the place of humility and least importance. When you do, you'll actually find that you are seeking the best spot all along. And when you make yourself low, you'll actually find that God will lift you up and you will be blessed without even realizing it. This is the topsy-turvy, upside-down kingdom language that Jesus always shares. If you want to be greatest in the kingdom, you're going to have to be the least. If you want to save your life, you're going to have to lose it. If you want to be mature enough to be a part of God's kingdom, you're going to have to become like a child again. The way towards God's realm is different than we might expect by our usual line of logic. But what does it mean to make ourselves low? What does it mean to seek humility in God's kingdom? Well, Jesus goes on to explain further. He tells the host that when they host a meal, they shouldn't invite their closest friends and family or even their rich neighbors and people of influence. Instead, they should invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind. In other words, the most vulnerable in their midst. When the host does this, then they will be truly blessed. So seeking the lowly place means that we journey out from our places of comfort and privilege towards the places on the edge, the places outside of the dining circle of influence. If the least important people are pushed towards the edges of the seating arrangement or not even included at all, Jesus is saying that being a part of God's realm means we seek to reside in those spaces too. Or better yet, have the vulnerable over to dinner and show them the same respect, honor, and dignity we would show our closest friends and family. And when we do that, then we're really practicing the way of God's realm and being the people that God calls us to be. But there's another aspect to this parable that's important for us to consider. In verse 14, Jesus tells the host that when they throw the dinner party, that includes those on the outside, the host will be blessed because the guests can't repay them. Instead, they will be repaid when the just are resurrected. Did you catch that key phrase? They'll be blessed because they can't be repaid. There's that kingdom logic at work again. Being blessed in the realm of God isn't about getting repaid for service or getting what we think we deserve. In fact, it's quite the opposite. Being blessed in this case means simply doing what God calls us to do and enjoying the freedom and ability we have to serve people with no strings attached. You can imagine hosting or being at a dinner party with prominent people and having over-honored guests would give someone an upper hand in society. It might even place a set of obligations or debt on the guest to one day repay the host with a favor. The same thing still happens today as we navigate our way through our careers. We try to network with the right kind of people in order to work our way up the social ladder. We try to make ourselves look good as much as we can in front of the people we think matter most who could potentially help us get ahead in life. But again, Jesus is calling us, telling us that God is calling us to something different. Caroline Lewis, the preaching professor at Luther Seminary, says this quid quo pro logic that is inherently part of our success-minded society won't fly in the kingdom of God. 
We can't do something and then expect a particular set of results to happen for us to start gaining influence or material blessings. God is calling us to abandon that logic, which brings us back to the question I raised a few moments ago. When we love and serve our neighbors, are we doing it because of how it might benefit us, or are we simply doing it because it's what we're called to do? This is not an accusation, but rather a friendly reminder of why we're doing this in the first place. God calls us to love and serve people regardless of the results or the risk or the potential accolade it might bring us. We don't love and serve to surround ourselves with people who can get us ahead in society or because God will bring us material wealth and blessings. Rather, as people of faith, we operate out of the scheme of God's grace, not quid quo pro. We try to live and serve out of a place of gratitude and joy for the amazing ways God has already blessed and gifted us. We seek to live with thanks for what we do have, seeing it all as a gift of grace. And in doing so, we are invited to consider how we might be able to use our blessings and gifts to help bless and serve others. Operating out of God's grace and a sense of gratitude means realizing that we already have a wealth of abundance to share and offer. Our time, our talents, our resources, our unique perspectives and gifts, we don't have to worry about a return on investment or what it might do for us or what it might even cost us. We make the assumption that what we already have from God is already enough to do the important work we're called to do. If I can lift up something good I did see on social media recently that illustrates this point wonderfully. A friend of mine from seminary recently posted a picture of her and a church member posing with a banner with their church name on it. They had carried the banner in a pride march for equality in the town that they live in. And they almost didn't do it because my friend realized that literally only one other person from the church was physically able to walk in the march with her. So a little disappointed in their potential turnout, she emailed the church member and asked if they should back out. The church member's response was simply, in the Olympic parade of nations, some countries only have two athletes present. We are marching. My friend concluded her post by saying how this taught her an important and valuable lesson about what it means to live with a mindset of abundance rather than scarcity. My friend and her church member weren't operating out of the sense of what they could get out of doing this event or how they could make a name for themselves by having a great turnout from their church and giving people notice. They simply felt called to serve and march for pride and equality of the marginalized, no matter what the results ended up being. And this raises one last crucial point for our life as the church Abandoning the quid pro quo scheme and operating out of God's grace also means that we are offered freedom from culturally set expectations of what success and thriving are supposed to look like, especially when it comes to assessing the effectiveness of our ministry. When we carry out our mission and spend ourselves and resources trying to serve people, it can feel so defeating to not see any results, at least the ones that we expect. It can be so tempting to start wondering if we're doing any good at all or if the things we're doing are even worth our time and effort. 
Even worse, we might even be tempted to start comparing ourselves to other people and faith communities and organizations who in our eyes seem to be so effective and impactful with their work while we seem to be struggling and running on empty. I can't tell you how true that is for me as a pastor to college students looking at the other campus ministries. But these words from Jesus and the Gospel of Luke are a reminder that we can let go of all of those expectations. We can let go of trying to measure ourselves up against perceived benchmarks and stop comparing ourselves against the ways God is working through others. When Jesus says we will be blessed because they can't repay us, he is also saying God doesn't call you to be effective the way that your culture defines it. God isn't calling you to increase the number of church members or the number of people you serve in order to be successful on those terms. God simply calls you to faithfulness. Success in ministry means loving everyone you're able to and serving them as humbly and authentically as you can. What happens next? Out of your hands. But you can trust that God will be pleased and you will be blessed. When we try to define success in ministry the way our capitalistic society defines it, that's when we start to get ourselves in trouble and put ourselves in the wrong frame of mind for love and service. In his book, Shrink, pastor and author Tim Suttle argues that this is exactly what so many churches in America get uh, so wrong about ministry. Even though Tim's context is more so the evangelical megachurch world, His ideas ring true for the Presbyterian church too. Here's what he writes. Church leaders are so often trying to embrace success, how we define it in a business economic sense, building up the numbers, building up the resources, extending reach, getting a bigger and bigger presence by getting people to flock to their church, bigger, better, more celebrated by people. But modeling our ministry on the way of Jesus means relinquishing ambition and embracing bringing ourselves low. He continues, the church's job is not primarily to grow. The church's job is not to thrive. The church's job is not even to survive. The church's job is to be faithful. Our growth, even our survival, is predicated on the will and power of God. The church's job is simply to be the church. Now, Tim explains in the rest of his book that this doesn't mean we can't be strategic or intentional about what we do as a church or the ways we spend our money. It also doesn't mean that this is easy and doesn't require any effort on our part. On the contrary, it's tricky, and it requires a great deal of effort and a lot of discernment and intentionality. But it does mean that we occasionally take stock of our values. What is our foundation? What is our primary purpose for existing? Do we as a church exist for ourselves? Does the church exist only to serve us? Or does the church exist to serve others? Indeed, it does. The church exists to serve the world, to be a blessing and participate in the work of God's inbreaking realm. At the end of the day, the church doesn't belong to us. It is we who belong to the church. May we find freedom in that truth. May we find comfort that we don't have to worry about these culturally set expectations of success and wealth and influence 
define how we view our ministry and its worth. Because of God's amazing grace, we're given freedom and encouragement to operate out of a sense of gratitude and abundance. We're invited to remember that we are blessed simply by being faithful to God's call to love and serve the most vulnerable in our midst, those on the outside. Let us embrace that call. Let us follow the way of descent to bring ourselves low, to embrace those pushed to the edges and count ourselves among them as we love and serve them as authentically and faithfully as we can. When we do, we will find that we are truly blessed. May it be so. Amen. Friends, please pray with me. Gracious God, thank you for the many ways you have gifted us to love and serve. Help us to use those gifts and be faithful to your call. Free us from the false expectations society places on us and that we place on ourselves so that we can be empowered and encouraged to live from a place of abundance and embrace and bless the most vulnerable in our midst. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.